From finance and commerce, this is Beyond the Skyline, a podcast about economic development, commercial real estate, and construction in Minnesota. In each episode, you will meet business leaders, builders, entrepreneurs, and big thinkers. I'm David Bolander, editor of Finance and Commerce. Thanks so much for joining me. Beyond the Skyline is sponsored by Ironmark Building Company. Whether it's a new luxury apartment building in the North Loop or expanding the community in the suburbs, Ironmark builds quality projects for discerning clients. Ironmark's foundation is built on a culture of collaboration with clients and projects that stand the test of time. Talk to Ironmark's award-winning team about your next construction project today. Go to ironmarkbuildingco.com. In this episode, Rethos Executive Director Heidi Swank talks to FNC reporter Brian Johnson. Swank discusses advancing equity in historic preservation, the green benefits of preservation, the importance of the state historic tax credits, and other topics. All right. Well, I'm, I'm here with Heidi Swank, Executive Director of Rethos. Um, Rethos is a nonprofit organization working nationwide for the use of old buildings and sites. We are holistic in our thought and flexible in our approach. We advocate space, invest in communities, and reimagine what can be. Um, that's sort of their a part of their mission statement. But um, Heidi, uh, yeah, thanks for joining us. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well. Um, I wanted to talk about some specific initiatives that you have going in, uh, at Rethos and the good work you do there. But I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about, kind of give us the background on your organization and talk a little bit more about your mission. Sure, I'd be happy to. So we are um, a 40-something-year-old organization. Folks might know us by our previous name, which was the Preservation Alliance of Minnesota. Uh, we transitioned to the new name uh, just before I took over in 2021. I think it was 2019 uh, to reflect that we do work um, outside of Minnesota also. Um, for us, we work inside a framework that we call the new preservation. And by that, we think of preservation really in really broad terms. Um, I think that folks often think of those amazing mansions on Summit Avenue in St. Paul, and we definitely are people who want, would defend those. But we're also extremely interested in the more modest stories and the more modest buildings. Um, I like to reference the lovely mid-20th century duplexes on Ford Parkway. Um, that uh, that whole breadth of, um, of building stock is what we're really interested in, and not just for buildings as themselves, but because um, we think that places shape our stories. And so these are places where we have our lived experience, where all of, you know, where all of the things happen in our lives, buildings are that backdrop. And so it's about telling those stories, about keeping those places around that people love and really focusing on um, kind of the catch up we need to do and the fact that we've not told a lot of stories of communities of color um, in the past historic preservation I would say until about 20, 25 years ago, really focused a lot on the stories of white communities. And we are looking to grow that not only to um, communities that um, are communities of color, but also looking more to the recent past 
Um, the a building doesn't have to be from 1890 to be of interest. It can be from 1980 and be of interest. Yeah, and tell us a little bit more about the um, mission to advance equity in historic preservation and support BIPOC communities. As I, I, I see on your website, that kind of caught my attention because the statement was made that historic preservation, like many other fields, has not always been the most inclusive. And, um, you know, I, I'm sure that's true. It's just not something you normally think about with uh, right. historic preservation. So I was wondering if you could just expand on that a little bit and talk about some of the um, specific initiatives you're working on in that respect. Sure. Yeah. So um, I would say that one of the things that um, we are working on is we have just signed an MOU with the city of St. Paul um, to help them um, come to a resolution on the Walnut Street steps, um, which you might know go um, from from um, basically 35 up the hill to Summit Avenue. And they are steps that are right by the James J. Hill House. And we're interested in telling those stories from the bottom of the steps. We know that a lot of workers came up those steps to work in the houses on Summit Avenue. And we think this is a really great opportunity to expand that understanding of those communities that um, lived on the bottom of the steps and use them as, as commuting. And so we've been working with um, neighborhoods um, up at the top of the steps, neighborhoods at the bottom of the steps, neighborhoods that are right beside the steps um, in order to come up with a plan um, in order to make those uh, accessible again. They have been closed for a couple of years due to, um, you know, they're really old steps that were put on a hill and the hill keeps moving down the hill. And so there are some places where they just are not safe anymore. And so we're looking at ways to get them reopened. Um, so that's one of the things that we're working on with really an emphasis, again, of telling the stories from the bottom of the steps. Um, we are also working to create an emerging developer fund. And this would be for BIPOC and women developers. We know that um, you know folks who are in the developer field tend toward male and tend toward white. And so trying to um, bring in greater diversity into that field. Um, this program would allow folks to, um, instead of taking out that bridge loan that gets them to their um, the tax credit that the state historic tax credit that comes in at the end of the project, um, we would be that bridge loan, um, so that they, you know, it's often hard to qualify for loans and get good interest rates. And we would be able to provide very low to no interest rates for folks. Um, and so right now we are in kind of the fundraising stage for that. And so I will make a pitch that if you would love to contribute to, uh, the Emerging Developer Fund at Rethos, just reach out. We are more than happy to talk to you about how to make that gift meaningful for you. Um, but we think that this could be a really great tool, not only to get um, more people under to understand how the state historic tax credit works, um, but also to just make it much more accessible to them. Mm. Um, another initiative that we're working on, rather new at this point, we're just in early kind of internal conversations we know that Minnesota has the highest concentration of Hmong in the United States, higher than any other state. Um, I think there are generations of stories and places that need to be told. And uh, so we are working um, with some folks to figure out what is that best path for Rethos to help elevate those stories, maybe not be the front of those stories, but help other folks tell their stories and amplify the stories that, that are out there. 
Um, and so we are working on looking at some grant opportunities that would allow us uh, to hire a staff member who would be dedicated full time to working with the Hmong community to um, get some of those um, historic sites for the community on the National Register, on the local register, as well as create more um, opportunities for people to learn about those important buildings and sites for the Hmong community. Well, those all sound like great initiatives, and I'm glad that you're part of this community. It seems like there's momentum is starting to build now for supporting BIPOC developers. I know that you know Twin Cities Lisk has been involved in this. I believe Ramsey County has something going on. Um, uh, the, the engineers uh, are looking to get uh, some improved diversity in the engineering community, which I'm going to be writing about pretty soon. So it's really exciting to see momentum continuing to build for that. Um, really, you know, just uh, you, you don't in previous, I've been doing this for a long time and you never really heard about it until just recently. It just didn't seem to be something that was on our radar that, you know, the development community is mostly white and male. And um, it's just important to have a community that, more closely reflects the population as a whole so agreed agreed mm -hmm. yeah but what what can you talk about what can you say about historic renovations from a sustainability standpoint because that's another thing that i've heard oftentimes is that that's the a really a, a green solution to go that way versus building new i mean i'm sure every project's unique and it it varies, right? It, mm -hmm. It's not a one-size-fits-all thing. But tell us about some of the sustainability benefits of uh, historic preservation. Yeah, I think there's a, the famous quote that the, the greenest building is the one that's already built. Mm -hmm. um, there's also a nice stat out there that I like, that if you take a modest-size uh, four-story building and you demolish it, you have wiped out the benefits of recycling 1.4 million aluminum cans. And so I think that is one of the things that we should keep in mind as we think about what we're putting in our landfills. We're all great recyclers here in Minnesota. You know, people are really good at making sure they get into recycling. But if you're going to go out and demolish a building, there goes a lot of that recycling you just did. You just wiped out all that benefit. Um, so I think getting folks to really realize like that there are many other options that are not necessarily demolition. One of the things that our education program has been working on is building um, more understanding around deconstruction. So we know that not every building can be saved. And that means, I mean, deconstruction could be, you know, a very simple thing of removing some of the interior features like mantles and stairways for reuse in another building or it could be actually taking apart the building and using the bricks. I know that there, um, this deconstruction is a relatively new uh, field. And I think we're probably about 10 years out from really having it up and humming because getting the supply chain going is always the, the difficult part. But we're, Rethos has been working with the, um, the communities and we're also talking with the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency about how we can expand our efforts in deconstruction education. Um, we're also working on um, some K through 12 deconstruction education because I think about as a kid when I when I learned that I needed to wear a seatbelt you know, back in the 70s, 
And then I became this insufferable child to my parents who would not let them leave the garage unless they had their seatbelts on too. So we know that teaching kids is really an effective tool for getting some really good information out, not only to the next generation, but also to their parents. Um, And so looking at ways that we can spread knowledge on deconstruction, uh, we also have a lot of great DIY classes for homeowners. Uh, We know that maintaining houses is often difficult and um, people always talk about, you know, putting in new windows and sometimes you do need to replace your windows, but a lot of times those old growth wood windows were made to be worked on. And so we have great classes where folks can learn to reglaze their their, the glass. They can learn to replace the rope in the windows so they can get them to open and close more easily. We can teach them about weather stripping and winterizing their homes so there's a lot of things that we do, especially through our education program on, on sustainability. Um, we're really excited to start working on reaching um, some of underrepresented communities with our DIY classes. I think that that's um, on our on our radar for next year, too, for our education program is how do we get more folks from communities that we don't necessarily see in our classes um, into our classes and how can we bring those into communities? So folks have ideas of places where we could teach our DIY classes in, in other communities. We would love to hear from them. Great. So, um, you briefly mentioned the, uh, historic tax credit. And I was wondering if you could expand on that a little bit, some of the benefits that, that we're seeing there. I've I've talked to a number of developers over the years who, and I often get these but for comments. This project would not be moving forward but for that tax credit. So I I know it's important, but can you expand on that a little bit and uh, just talk about some of the benefits of that? Yeah. So I will say I moved here from um, Nevada, uh, where I ran. I started Nevada's statewide historic preservation nonprofit. Nevada does not have a state historic tax credit. And I would always be like surprised by all of a sudden a building's just gone. And that just doesn't happen as much here, right? Because we have tools that can keep buildings around. And that state historic tax credit is a key piece. And I, and I think the thing that is often um, not seen about state historic tax credits is that the point of them is the federal, right? It's to bring money back that would have left our state and to come back to our state. And so I think looking at that state historic tax credit, not only as a, as a tool to leverage in-state money, but also federal money is important. And also when you are looking at rehabbing a building, about 70% of your costs when you rehab a building are labor. That means local money in local pockets in local economies. That means that you're, when you, you know, purchase it, when you build a new building, you're buying a lot of materials from out of state. And so then a bunch of our money just goes out of state and out of our economy here in Minnesota. So that tax credit really does allow us to keep more money in state and support more local folks. I think also like one of the things we're seeing now is that more and more folks in greater Minnesota are using the state historic tax credit. And one of the big challenges we have seen in greater Minnesota is schools. So a lot of schools are getting decommissioned. And honestly, schools are like the easiest conversion. My gosh, those classrooms are like the perfect size for for a one bedroom or studio apartment. So much easier than so many other buildings to convert. 
And this tax credit really makes it so much more easy to, so much more easy, so much easier to, uh, um, to get that done. I know like the school in Casson specifically, they were really waiting for the state historic tax credit to come back. And that's a really great project. It's a school right off of downtown. And I believe it's going to be converted into senior housing. I think that's the last I heard, which is a great thing because that, that means that those folks can walk like two blocks and they're in downtown. And so they don't have to rely on cars. Um, and so I think there's a lot of great things in greater Minnesota, especially conversions of schools. Um, and I will say one thing on the school front, um, Rethos is also working on creating what we're calling a historic listing service. Um, we realized that we have a lot of developers who come to us and say, hey, where's the next building? Um, what's the next thing that you guys see out there? And then we have school districts, we have congregations come to us and say, I've got this school or I've got this church or I've got this, this office building or whatever it is. I don't know what to do with it. And often they'll put out an RFP that has, you know, best of intentions, but maybe not ones that are going to entice a developer to come and take a look at the building. So we're working um, to pull together a historic listing service where we would work with the school districts, the congregations, the individual owners of these buildings and help them put together information that would be most beneficial to developers and then be able to list it on our website. And we're working with Moody's Analytics to make sure that um, these would also be um, they'd be visible locally, but also nationally uh, to pull in developers. Because we know developers aren't always, they work, a lot of them work across the country. So I think, mm -hmm. and that then gets us to more folks who will be able to use that state historic tax credit and fewer buildings being put in landfills. Mm, great. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit more about you also touched on this a little bit, but how, how, how does a building qualify as historic? Oftentimes we think about something built in the 1800s or early 1900s, but you mentioned that even some of the newer buildings now are sort of being considered for that category. Um, even those built in the 80s, maybe, which is kind of weird to me because I got my driver's license in 79 and the 80s are, it seems like, wait a minute, you know, that's too recent to be considered um, right, right. historic, right? But uh, tell us about that and some of the things that are looked at when you uh, right. are building in that category. So the general time frame that is out there under the Secretary of Interior standards is 50 years for a, a building with the idea that we often as a society need 50 years to kind of look back on something and say, okay, so now in light of everything that's happened, I can see that this is an important structure. And so 50 years will is 1973 and in a couple of weeks will be 1974. But that 50 years is not a hard number. Mm -hmm. um, it's a rather squishy number. So like I give often give the example of on September 11th, 2001, when the Twin Towers fell, we knew that day that that was a historic site. We didn't need to wait 50 years to know that. And so there are some sites, some buildings that are so important that we are able to get them on the National Register early. Another example is uh, Landmark Tower in downtown St. Paul. That is a early 1980s, I believe, and that is on the National Register and we'll be using state historic tax credits uh, to redo that office space into apartments and condos. Um, so getting people to think like, 
you don't have to go back that far, right? We have got so many more buildings that could be rehabbed using the state historic tax credit. I think that it's not a big, it's, it's really pretty simple to get a building up to 1973 within that 50 year mark on the national register and thereby qualify for state historic tax credits. But even into 80, it's really, if you've got the right story and you have the right architectural historian who's writing that and can make your argument, it's, it is not so hard to get it on the register up to 1980. Hmm. Interesting. If I could add one more thing too. So I think often people also think that when you put a building on the national register or on the state register, that means you cannot change it. So the state and national register are actually honorary lists. We lose buildings on those registers every day. People can alter them. There are no protections that come with that. The register that has protections is your local register. And the reason that you have protections at your local level is that you want your smallest part of government to decide what historic preservation looks like for that community. So what historic preservation looks like in Wilmer might not be the same thing as it looks like in Golden Valley. And that is why those local registers that are city citywide are just I have protection so that smallest group of people decides what historic preservation means for them. That mm-hmm. said, if you're going to get on, if you're going to use historic tax credits, that's when you get into the where there are some hoops to jump through and some things that can't be altered. But I think often people confuse it with, oh, I don't want to put it on the National Register because I won't be able to do anything with it. And I, but it's actually a really great marketing tool. Um, to say that your building is on the National Register, it gives it a bit of, of gravitas and a bit of importance, um, and it doesn't constrain what you would do with it. Hmm. Absolutely. Um, well, we've covered a lot of ground here, Heidi, but is there anything else that you'd care to mention uh, as far as things that you're working on or anything sure. you care to highlight? Yeah, so we are currently working with a coalition of folks who are interested in um, solving the issues we have with um, vacant office space, uh, vacant schools, and um, also vacant churches and uh, vacant other things, too, that are maybe can't make it on the National Register. So maybe they're 15 years old. Um, We know that there's a lot of office space across the state that has gone empty since the pandemic. So we are working on what's called a conversion tax credit. Um, we're bringing this to the legislature in 2024. It would be a 30% tax credit. Um, it would not, um, you would not have to get it on the national register. Um, it would have to be at least a 15 year old building. And so we're hoping that this can help solve that problem because we know that some of our high rises and skyscrapers that are older have smaller floor plates and are easier to convert. But when we get to these newer buildings, they have very large floor plates. And in order to make sure that, you know, bedrooms need to have windows. And so how do you figure that out? And then also we know that there's, if you're going to be changing from office to say apartments, suddenly you have everybody showering at the same time. And so there's a lot of plumbing changes that need to happen. So you can get those drain lines large enough in a very large building and you're going to need more of them. And so all of this just makes it harder to make sure we are not throwing away these newer skyscrapers that now uh, don't have a use as far as offices. So we think the conversion tax credit uh, would be a really great way to solve that problem going forward. So we're hopeful 
Um, you'll hear more about that from us as we go into the 2024 legislative session. Um, but I think that uh, might be really of interest to um, your listeners. Absolutely. I'd love to find out more about that as we get quite We're already halfway through December, just about. So it's hard to believe that the 2024 session is, is just around the corner. But um, yeah, that would be, I'd love to learn more about that and reconnect with you about that. Um, Sounds great. Yeah. And uh, I've always enjoyed going back to when you were the Preservation Alliance of Minnesota. Enjoyed talking with you folks about the different initiatives and projects you've had working on. I've often called Erin Hannafinberg and um, glad to see that she's still still with you guys and still active. Yeah. So, um, and I'm glad to see that Cass and School projects moving forward. It just seems like they've been talking about that forever. And I know. I, I know. About that. Yeah. So. Yeah. I'm hopeful that it will that it'll that it will land and and we'll have that. It's it's a great school. It's a lovely building. Mm, definitely. Well, thank you for your time, um, Heidi. Really enjoyed chatting with you, and uh, definitely let's uh, stay in touch. Sounds like you have a lot of good things going on there. So, Great. Thank you, Brian. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk more about Rethos. Thank you so much for having me. 